only advance his purposes and restore his servants despite the failures of sinful men. Let's begin by reading together in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter at three different times as we address each section. Verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Uriah, Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out from Absalom, or out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left. From anything that my lord the king has said, 
It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. This is God's word, and I hope we will reverence it together in our hearts this morning. I I hope you have confidence as you hear the word of God that he will instruct your heart. And he has something for each of us individually, not just for the other person that we might think of, but I hope you have a high view of Scripture and you hear it as his word as we've read it. Let's ask the Lord's help as we continue. Lord, we pray just that you would give us understanding, clear understanding of the meaning of this portion of your holy word. That you would give us grace to apply it with humility to our own lives. Lord, our hearts are in your hands. And we pray that in your mercies you would water the seed of your word sown in weakness. And raise it up in strength in each of our lives and hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This again is historical narrative. And Absalom, the third son of David, we're told from Scripture that at the time of Absalom, when David lived in Hebron, he had six sons by six different wives. Must have been an unusual dynamic. And Absalom has fled from the area of Jerusalem to the town of Geshur, about about 80 miles northeast of Jerusalem, because he has recently instigated the death of his half-brother Amnon on the trip to see the sheep shearers at Baal, Baal Hazor. Here in Geshur lived Absalom's maternal grandparents through his mother, the wife of David, Maacah. And David is faced with a terrible dilemma. He knows that he should deal with his son Absalom in some way, but he seems paralyzed to act decisively, perhaps because of his own shame and and remorse. There's an awful sense here of like father, like son, in witnessing uh, Absalom commit the same sin that David has committed. In fact, this, cha- this chapter's three main characters have all committed murder. And none of them have received the recompense that they deserved for their murderous acts. While David should have executed Mosaic law and the discipline of it on both Joab and Absalom, he himself had been pardoned through the prophet Nathan. And perhaps he hesitates because of that. His response here is merely to keep Joab as the commander of Israel's armies and to continue Absalom's exile away from Jerusalem in the town of Geshur. I think it's important that we accurately understand the dynamics of the relationship between Absalom and David with some help from those who know the ancient languages through which we translate our English translations. The bookended phrases of chapter 14 that we're looking at today, verse 1 and verse 33, seem to indicate on a first reading from our English translations that David felt great affection, a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings toward Absalom that we read in the, in the two verses that begin and end the chapter. But numerous Bible scholars point, us, point out and help us to see that it's most likely the opposite 
that David is feeling here. Not affection for, but maybe apprehension towards Absalom. Maybe some antagonism. Say, well, how do we get to that? Well, in the last verse of chapter 13 that we read last week, the phrase ends, the soul of King David longed to go out unto Absalom. And we're told by those who know the Hebrew that the verb there in verse 39, it can be translated from Hebrew, longed to go out, yes. But more often it means to come to an end, to be finished, to run out, to be used up. Suggesting a reading of scripture more like the king's desire for marching out against Absalom was used up. Or he didn't have enthusiasm for it anymore. Warren Wearsby paraphrases it. David planned to go after Absalom and deal with him, but his anger gradually quieted down. In this change of heart, perhaps gave Joab some optimism that now the king could be approached about getting Absalom back to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, again, the phrase reads in our English translations, Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. But it translates literally, the heart of the king was either upon Absalom or against Absalom. And Bible scholars suggest that it's probably the latter. Considering that there was never any familial affection expressed through Absalom's mouth toward his father. He never asked to see his father. He asked to see the king. And then also in verse 24, David's decision about uh, Absalom returning to Jerusalem was that Absalom could return, but set him up in his own housing, and I don't want to see his face. So with these circumstances and with these relational tensions in mind, we first see uh, Joab's ruse in verses 1 through 20. Joab had felt David's displeasure since the time he had murdered Abner, the former commander of Saul's armies, who upon Saul's death had sworn his loyalty to David. David had said at the time of Abner's death, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner. May it fall on the head of Joab. Everyone in Israel knew that it had not been the king's will to, keep it, to kill Abner. And David had said to his servants at the time of Abner's death, A prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel. Joab desired at this time the restoration of David's confidence in him. And relief from the fear he might have felt that he might still face the punitive actions he deserved at the hand of King David. So with a story that is eerily similar to that which Nathan told David in chapter 12 following his sin with Bathsheba, Noab enlists a woman from Tekoa, a town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And she is to tell another story to David as an appeal to him. She's a stranger to David, one whose story will most likely catch him off guard than if a close associate had come to him. And it seems that in the same manner Nathan's story had appealed to David, the story of the young lamb being taken from the, the poor man who had so little, taken by one who was more wealthy. That story appealed to the heart of David the shepherd. But here, the story of the Tekoan woman about a warring family appeared to appeal 
to the heart of David, the father, whose own family was a mess. We need to think of this deception, this whole story in the first 20 verses as the work of Joab. Though the woman of Tekoa is referenced more than twice as many times as Joab, we're told in verse 3 that Joab put the words in her mouth. It's Joab, not the woman of Tekoa, who should be examined with suspicion and held responsible for all this. What his motives are, we're not sure we can tell from the narrative. Perhaps he acted out of a friendly relationship that he still had with Absalom. Perhaps he acted out of a a political concern, a, a love of the nation Israel. And the fact that now King David was approaching the age of 60, um, if something should happen to King David, there, could, there was potential, many thought, for civil war over the polarizing figure of David's son Absalom. And so perhaps Joab thought that by getting Absalom back in Jerusalem, closer to the good graces of King David, it'd be good for the nation of Israel, might prevent such div- division. This woman of Tekoa is called wise. She's witty. She's like the consummate actress. And the, t- the tale that she spins out is believable. It's really brilliantly communicated. If you, if you read repeatedly the chapter, how she tells her own story, a story which is not true, but somehow she weaves in and at some point decides to go close to David's own story, approaching him about Absalom. But then quickly backing away with flattery and back and forth she goes it's masterful it's brilliant Joab directs her to include a costume in her presentation morning robes not early in the morning but robes of sadness and that she's to appear as one who has mourned many days over the loss of her son she's not to anoint herself with oil and when she comes before the king In verse 5, we're told, or verse 4, we're told that she bows in obeisance before the king. Ironically, it's the first of three bows before the king in this chapter, none of which were tremendously sincere. But she bows before him. She comes claiming in verse 5 to be a widow whose two sons had fought in the field. One had killed the other, and now the rest of her clan, she calls it a kind of a loose confederation of families, relatives who would have had control over the administration of Mosaic law in that, in that area, that region. This clan is insisting that she surrender her surviving son so that he can be put to death for the killing of his brother. She doesn't dispute her son's guilt, but she claims that this will quench her coal. This will This will extinguish the the name of her good husband. And so while she doesn't dispute his guilt, she claims that the murder wasn't done in a premeditated fashion. It happened quickly, instantly, in the passion of an argument in the field. She claims that probably those demanding her son's surrender only want to steal the inheritance from him. She claims that after all... um, There were no eyewitnesses to the murder and all these things. So she gains a judgment from David that that the putting of a murderer to death ought to be dispensed with. David even takes an oath at her urging, making a promise that as the Lord lives, there's the oath, 
Not one hair of your son shall fall. Then abruptly after securing David's judgment about her two sons, the sons who didn't exist, she asks for another word, something he hadn't planned on. Kind of like I did the other day when a painter came to my house to quote me on a, a job and I, I asked him if I could put an add-on to his visit there. I asked him to look at another room in the house or maybe a handyman comes to repair a faucet and you ask him while he's there to look at a couple electrical outlets. Well, the add-on of the Tukoan woman proved to be a rebuke of him, didn't it? So she says basically, if you can excuse the murder of my surviving son, why won't you excuse Absalom? Why are you doing this to the people of God, the nation of Israel? After all, we must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. It sounds a little bit like don't cry over spilled milk or get over it. We can't bring Amnon back. But we can be like God who devises means so that banished people don't remain outcasts. This had to have resonated with King Saul, right? He had experienced banishment under the rule of King Saul. This had to have appealed to David. But soon after this rebuke, she reverts back to her own made-up story, and she's careful to insert some praise, some flattery. She says, Your servant thought the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. Wow. A manipulative stroking with words of a man who, as one pastor notes, could not discern between the good of sleeping with his own wife and the evil of sleeping with another man's wife. What a ruse Joab had constructed. At this point, David does guess that Joab is behind this, driving this encounter. And again, the Tekoan woman confirms that Joab commanded her, she says, to do this in order to change the course of things he did this. And whether David is angered or not by this, we can't tell exactly from the narrative. But in verses 21 through 24, we then hear David's response. David is the one person of the chapter's main characters who has experienced true restoration before God for his sin with Bathsheba, adultery. Yet certainly he still longs for the restoration of his own family, something that would never be entirely possible. Think of the human anguish each of us would feel if in our families a sister had been raped, a daughter and a son, a brother, had been murdered. And all of this done by other family members. You talk about a dysfunctional family. Reading from verse 21, we hear, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom did live apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. 
In verse 21, we, we wonder if maybe there's a bit of fist pumping going on in the, in the mind and heart of Joab as he realizes that all that he has orchestrated is going to happen. He may have even interpreted David's concession on Absalom as a signal that he himself, Joab, would not be held to account for his own crimes against Abner. Allow Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but set him up with his own housing and keep him from my presence, David says. And here we see some of the frailty of this earthly king, David. David was a wonderful example in many ways, certainly in his personal repentance, but he was an inconsistent example in his discernment and his decisiveness. He was human. He had failed to deal with Joab's murder of Abner, and we hear regret over that later in the text of 1 Kings 2, where an elderly uh, King David is talking to his son Solomon, and he, he cautions him, you also know what Joab did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. David was known for being too lenient with his sons. In 1 Kings we're told that he had never had any time displeased Adonijah, Another of his sons, whom Scripture tells us was very handsome. But he never asked Adonijah, why have you done thus and so? No confrontation ever. He had not seen the potential for violence in his son Amnon. He failed to deal with Absalom, who in the absence of David acting decisively, took matters into his own hands. And now he doesn't see the potential danger of Absalom returning to Jerusalem. The consequences of failing to act in the past are still being felt in the present, aren't they? Though he initially planned to deal with Absalom severely, his attitude changes. And he compromises by bringing him home to Jerusalem. Perhaps David did lack confidence to deal with Absalom because of personal guilt. Our personal sins have a way of poking a hole in our boldness, don't they? And yet, if, if you're a parent, you're in a position that must make a difficult decision and you're forgiven, you must embrace that forgiveness and move forward with what is now best for your child's discipleship, for their future. Even if that means disciplining them for something that you've done yourself. Matthew Henry writes, I see not how David can be justified in suspending the execution of the ancient law. Genesis 9, 6. Whoso sheds man's blood by him, by man shall his blood be shed. In which a righteous magistrate ought not to even acknowledge his brethren or know his own children. God's laws, Henry continues, were never designed to be like cobwebs which catch the little flies but suffer the great ones to break through. God justly made Absalom, who David's foolish pity spared, a scourge to him. All of this seems hard on David in a sense, but it actually sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Sometimes a failure to confront problems in relationships 
maybe particularly in parenting. No attempt to bend the will of a child who's headed the wrong direction away from a sobriety or a reverence towards God. Never displeasing our children with why have you done thus and so. And sometimes there's actually more fear in the hearts of the parent to approach the child than there is in the heart of the child to be approached by the parent. The behaviors and attitudes which we allow to go unchecked in our parenting today because we cannot or will not muster up the energy or the courage to confront them will not change on their own. Those weeds will grow bigger and will take on deeper roots without an attempt to pull them out now. Again, Matthew Henry, see how easily wise and good men may be imposed upon by their own children that design ill, especially when they're blindly fond of them. Our love for our children is not demonstrated by all the kindnesses with which we can gorge their appetites, but by a longer view that discipline is part of love. It's painful sometimes. And it's a part of full restoration, yet it's something David did not do here. We hear nothing of a call to repentance in Absalom. Just a sort of silent treatment going on, maybe demonstrating fear toward him on the part of David. Well, it might have taken a week to ten days, we're told, to go get Absalom from Gesher and relocate him. And soon we do read in verse 25 and on of Absalom's return. Absalom, now the crown prince, wants the restoration of a clear path to the throne. He wants a clear conscience about Amnon. But he wants all of this without even a glimmer of contrition. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time. But Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants. See Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose. And went to Absalom at his house. And said to him. Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab. Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. One writes of Absalom's spirit here that it was still unhumbled, his pride still unmortified, and instead of being thankful that his life is spared, 
He thinks himself sorely wrong that he's not restored to all his places at court. Had he truly repented of his sin, his distance from the gaieties of court, his solitude and retirement in his own house, especially being in Jerusalem, the holy city, would have been very agreeable to him. Again, in fairness to David, there's a sense in which he could not have restored Absalom fully in God's way, even if he had wanted to, because there was no palpable repentance in Absalom. The question that Absalom asks, wherefore have I come from Geshur, is a kind of throwing down of the gauntlet, a a daring. If I'm innocent, why am I being treated like this? If I'm guilty, put me to death. So Absalom gained this audience with King David, not by any kind of humility, not even pretended humility, but by force. And this was his spirit. Then we see Absalom's appearance. In the mention of Absalom here, we're told three mundane facts, aren't we? He was very handsome, Scripture says. He had great hair, three to five, years, three to five pounds worth at its yearly cutting and weighing, And if it had oil and powder in it, especially if powdered with gold dust, as the church historian Josephus tells us was fashionable then, it's not at all incredible that his hair could weigh up to five pounds. And then thirdly, we're told that his family was growing. He had three sons and a daughter. But there's nothing mentioned, nothing, about the prince's character or his service. Dale Ralph Davis bemoans, There's nothing about wisdom or piety or faith or worship. Those are significant omissions in describing a man. And in fact, it's a bad signal to hear a man praised for his physical impressiveness. This is, we know, the same phenomenon that we hear repeated in Scripture. In the book of 1 Samuel, when when Samuel is first introduced to Saul, we see in Scripture that Saul was more handsome and taller than any of the people of Israel. When Samuel goes to meet Jesse and all his sons to anoint whoever would be the king who would follow Saul, um, Samuel looks on Eliab, the older brother of David, and assumes that surely this is the Lord's anointed because he's tall and handsome. God has to tell him, this is not the one. Don't look on him because of his appearance. I, I have rejected him. And even as they called David, maybe that same day from the the fields, the mention of David is that he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, he was handsome. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, we're told there. And the point in highlighting this, I think, is not that the narrator himself is impressed by this, but that the culture of that day seemed to be impressed by appearances, just as we are in our 21st century, fascinated by, impressed by appearances, one's image over their integrity, their looks often over their character. We tend to underestimate the one who is more humble or pedestrian in their appearance. Is this in a way not why Social media has such an intoxicating hold on us. It's not that there's anything wrong with a beautiful image, but we desire that kind of environment. We, we want to appear beautiful. We want to see the beauty of others. 
We don't want life to be as true as it is up close and in person. And we want the likes and the the heart emojis of that environment when we already have, as believers, the full weight of God's fatherly love in His disposition toward us. And was not the greatest leader in world history, the greatest servant, Jesus of Nazareth, actually noted for his average appearance? We struggle with that, don't we? We want, we want Jesus, our Savior, to be the perfect human specimen in our earthly eyes. But Isaiah had written prophetically that Jesus would have no, no comeliness, no unusual level of attractiveness. Perhaps there was nothing about Jesus to elicit a double take, at least nothing in his appearance. Who would have thought that the supernatural saving power of the Son of God would come in this form? But did Jesus need physical attractiveness to be pierced for our transgressions? To be crushed for our iniquities? To lead us toward reconciliation with our God? So Absalom's spirit, his appearance, and then his character. Absalom's character was selfish and stubborn. He had character, it was just bad character. Character that planned and premeditated. He waited years before he initiated the murder of his brother Amnon, all the while increasing in his kind of seething resentment against this brother. He waited more years in Gesher before he initiated his demands for an audience with the king. But his pattern was to press to press forward until he got what he wanted. In his desire to isolate Amnon on that trip to see the sheep shears, he asked David repeatedly to go with him or to allow the young men to go. And twice the phrase is used, he pressed David. Absalom pressed him. Now he twice summons Joab to come when he wants an audience with the king. And when Joab doesn't respond, Absalom sets his field on fire, demanding a response. The impudence of Absalom, his this kind of cocky boldness, this lack of shame, demonstrated his lack of respect for Joab, not to mention the position of the king of Israel. And so at the end of the chapter, verse 33 writes that at his audience with the king, the king kissed Absalom. But again, as we noted in the introduction, Though to our English ears this sounds like the unabashed affection of a father for his son, this was a kiss of custom, not affection. It was a royal protocol, not a demonstration of familial love. In fact, there's never a mention of going before my father. It's going before the king. We said as we began, despite all this, God sovereignly advances his purposes and restores his servants Despite the failures of sinful men. The failure of the characters in this passage. To be truly restored in the way they wanted. Points us to a God who can fully restore. God can accomplish what these men cannot. With their scheming or caving in. Or demanding. The full restoration of relationships and trust. And position is glaringly absent in this story as Joab, Absalom, even David 
want to move forward from past wrongs, but they go about it in the wrong ways. Without repentance. Without the consequences that may come with loving discipline. Without the hard communication that's necessary to reset broken relationships. And this is true for us today. One theologian writes, The mess that results from human sin is intractable. Intractable. Who can deal with the messes of our nation and our families? Who can bring security and forgiveness? Only the one, the God who truly restores. The one who models gracious restoration in the life of a repentant David. The broken and flawed king whose lineage will one day bring the Messiah of Israel. Despite the failures of the sinful men we read of here in this passage, God's purposes go on undeterred toward Bethlehem. Jesus had his own story of two sons that he told to the people gathered to him in Luke 15. We know it. One son had self-banished from the family through selfish sin. But he comes to himself and returns home truly repentant, willing to do anything to just be near his father again. Meanwhile, the elder brother who also wants to be in the good graces of his father thinks he can be accepted and be constantly restored in his father's favor, yet he hangs on to his resentment, his self-righteousness against the prodigal, lacking in humility and repentance. And this father, full of grace, Scripture tells us, while the prodigal was still a long way off, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the true kiss of restoration, of pardoned sin, of rescue. The woman of Tekoa was right. God does devise means so that the banished because of their sin do not remain outcasts. This is the gospel. We who are alienated from God through our own sins can come to him through the merits of his perfect son. And not because of any works done by us in righteousness, Titus writes, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what we celebrate now as we take communion together. And may the Lord humble and strengthen and thrill us by his grace this morning. Let's bow together again in silent prayer as Pastor Stephen comes.